Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air, welcome back to the podcast, stoked you're here. Today, I have for you a very in-depth conversation with my new friend Rob Scott. Rob is, he's a coach, he's a podcaster, and he has an incredible story, of which we hear some of today, that includes everything from horrendous abuse when he was a child to drug addiction, incarceration, followed by an incredible awakening. And it's through those experiences that he has developed a system that he calls the fundamental shift that we talk about a lot today. And my conversation was really interesting and I want to share some of my experience with you here so that you can kind of kind of preface it. Essentially, I was in Colorado. I wasn't here at home with my podcasting mic. Rob was with his podcasting mic, which is really nice. His audio sounds so good and mine is sufficiently good. Um, but I actually ran out of coffee. And I thought that would be fine. It was kind of a rest day for me. But I'd ran out of coffee. I drank decaf. And I sat down to talk to Rob. And I found myself in a very relaxed state. And throughout the conversation, Rob guides me through just basically, even, I guess, to say... Even talking about mindfulness tends to snap me into mindfulness. If I mention or have mentioned to me the idea that I can bring my awareness to the current moment in my body or in external reality, I have a hard time talking about that without my mind naturally snapping to that. And even as I did it now, I felt my feet in my shoes. I felt my, the feeling of my hand clasped around my other arm behind my back as I stand here recording this. So in the conversation, I found myself coming back to the moment over and over and over. And in the two hours, it almost became a meditation where I was in conversation, but I was also deeply present with myself. I had a number of pretty profound experiences. I had this experience where I was so present with the feeling of the tip of my tongue on the back of my teeth. I don't think I'd ever experienced it in such clarity or depth. I also, as I listened to Rob repeatedly, I would close my eyes and I was staring at a screen, right? I was looking at him on a Zoom call. And when I closed my eyes, I could actually see almost like a imprintation into my vision that was like the square of his Zoom call window and his like microphone arm. And I could see like his outline, but like in an inverse, it was almost like staring at that imprinted in my vision that. And then when I closed my eyes, I was present enough to kind of like see that. Which I thought was interesting. That hasn't, that's not something I'm used to. So 
the my just natural state as I had this conversation for nearly two hours with Rob and I continued to bring my awareness back into my body, back into the moment, back into the moment, back into the moment, which is such a beautiful thing and uh, one of the things I'm most grateful for in Rob and his message and this conversation was that I literally had like an afterglow of this experience for like three days where I just brought myself back into the moment and back into the moment and the person that I was around the most in the days after that I it was like a veil was lifted and I could see her very clearly and I had the felt sense that I had that I could observe her without evaluating her I could see her without judging her I could just see her and what a beautiful thing and what a pivotal shift and so one of the things that he challenges me on is the idea that I need to like work at this to make it more real because the reality is that this is available to me at all times that I can shift into this awareness at any given moment so yeah this is an amazing conversation and with a person who I have a strong feeling is going to be back on this podcast and is going to be a mentor of mine moving into the future. I think I'm going to trade him excitement and energy, <laughs> stoke as currency, and uh, we're going to do great things. So without further ado, wait, one, one to do. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it on Patreon. I want this podcast to be completely listener supported i don't want to do any advertising and would love to have your support in that so patreon.com slash airy in the air really appreciate that i'm giving my top tier patrons coaching calls so now without further ado here some musica and a long conversation with a very thoughtful person rob scott enjoy
Okay. Rob Scott, thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Good to see you, dude. Yeah. So the things that brings the thing that brings us together today is our mutual love for Greg Enriquez. And mm-hmm. Greg connected us after my last conversation with him, where he talked a lot about your fundamental shift and this idea of being able to fall in love with experience. And I think we're going to get into that today. Um, and as we were talking before the recording, I let you in on my, my aversion to this idea of grinding. There is so much content out there, like the Gary Vaynerchuks, as much as I love him. Yeah. That says that like, if you want something, you got to like grind for it. And I, for me, I, where that lives in my worldview is in a societal understanding of my worth being externally validated by how much money I can make. And in my life, I found that I have that drive that like inkling is there, but like, I don't want to sacrifice my lifestyle, my well-being, my free time, my freedom, any of those things. And so um, one of the things that I've heard in your previous recordings with Greg is kind of a new way to look at this. And so I think I'd like to start there. Yeah, for sure. So if we think about the, the idea of grinding, that becomes necessary if a very specific thing is what you are insisting on. So grind is deeply important if you've got a model of what you want and the world is not that, and you need to make the world what you want it to be, right? Mm-hmm. Different or myself, than right? Say again? Or myself. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like that I have to make be- myself different. Of course. Right. So that would still be a thing that you're imagining about the future, right? I'll be different in the future. So all of this is that grind is time-based, right? That grind is what is, is not what I'd like it to be. Whether I'm putting myself in the frame and considering myself like backing up to see self and saying, that's the thing that needs to be different. Or if it's something outside of what we would all imagine to be self, like I want this building to exist that doesn't exist. I have to make it then grind is very effective to stay determined to fight against the isness that isn't what you want it to be and turn it into the isness that you do want it to be. And so that's incredibly effective in its own right, right? That's how we make buildings and technologies and do all these different things. We create things that never existed before and we make them. And so grind is a feature that could be an ad, an advantage, you know, to do those things, right? The other side of this is if I don't like what is, I can, instead of changing what is to match my preference, which is what self does so well, right? Self is like, no, it's got to be different. I want this other thing. We can actually change ourselves to actually match what is very meaningfully. Like those are really the two options. Mm. And, and so that alone, we could kind of pause on and, and look at more deeply, right? So in my desire set, my, um, you know, what I'm finding relevant in the moment, what I'd like to be different, all those things, I really have only two options. I can either accept what is meaningfully, or I can try to not accept it and affect the change. What you'll watch most people out in the world doing 
is a third option, which is I might equate to insanity. I think people like Eckhart Tolle have told, talked about this as insanity also. It's not change anything and not accept it, which is actually suffer, right? Just mm -hmm. suffer. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. And if there's something that we can't change, then we're left with, well, I have to accept it, right? Because I literally can't change it. It's, it's unchangeable. Often things in the past are like that, right? So I can't go back to the past and change something that's happened. So psychologically, I have to learn to forgive myself, forgive them, do something to get to acceptance of the isness of that past, right? That, that history or whatever. But there's also things like I'll probably under my own leg power, never jump to the moon. If I got really attached to wanting that, it would be very unwise for me to just be deeply upset about that, right? It, it, something that absurd it makes kind of sense to go, well, yeah, that's, that's silly. But we watch most humans not take action that they could take and not accept what they could accept. And then in that is suffering. And the way I usually talk about suffering more simply is just suffering is uh, resisting what is. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the degree to which you resist what is, is the degree to which you suffer. So think about like, you know, you might say, well, I don't have a piece of gum right now. I wish I had a piece of gum. There might be a hint of suffering in that, but not very much. It's like, I can survive that one. Right. But the bigger that the resistance gets, like I hate myself or I hate this situation or whatever, and I can't accept what I really am or what it really is. That is the degree to our suffering. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to like kind of, summarize this i like those three options that you gave there's acceptance of what is there's deciding to change whether that's change yourself to meet what is external or change the external world and then the third option that you call insanity is to hate it and not change it and the degree to which you do that is the degree to which you suffer. Yeah. And if you, if you go back and, and you know, uh, the serenity prayer addresses this. <laughs> it's right? funny that you said that. I, the, yeah. That was the first thing that came on for me, as you said. So, you know, grant me the ability to accept that which I can't change and the wisdom to know, you know, what I can change. The, right? cur the, the, the courage, right? Yeah, to, the courage to change what I can, what I can yeah. and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That notice that, that third suffering option isn't in there. Right? Yeah, it's not, not in there. But what is in there is that wisdom. Yeah, let's talk about that. Right. Let's double click so that, on that 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 wisdom move is like, what is you know, how can I be wise about that? Because it's unwise to suffer unnecessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we? What's the Rob Scott version of wisdom? How do you? For, how do you frame that idea? Yeah. So you, you mentioned that, that Greg connected us and um, I listened to your interview with him and everybody else, you know, uh, high, highly recommend that. It's a, it's a very good call. Um, there, you guys were looking for almost one definition of, of wisdom, right? It's like, well, John Verveke says it's this, but that's one aspect of it. Any definition of anything is contextual. Uh -huh. right? Like in different contexts, it might mean different things and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So all of these words that we're going to use are, uh, they matter on, you know, the context in which we're using them and, and how we do this. So a full and permanent definition of wisdom is not necessarily useful, but 
we can talk about kind of where you guys started, right? There's this embodied ability to kind of know what to do, you might say, right? And it, you could remind me what John Verbeke's exact version is if you, yeah. if you have it. But he, he called it embodied knowledge. Embodied knowledge. Cool. Okay. So I think that's great. And that gets to like how you don't have to like, it's not just knowledge that I can like find and have. It's like, I already have it. It's like kind of in me, right? That's it. It's, it's soaked in far enough. It's yeah. like, it's not just intellectual knowing it's actually soaked into the subconscious. Like mm -hmm. you say, the, the yeah. unconscious competence mm -hmm. to like actually be a source of behavior of thought of energy, as opposed to this, technique. Sure. Right. So let's come back to that because that's an important model, that unconscious competence model. We'll come back to that in a second. Right. So if we take that, that's related very much to knowledge. I would say absolutely. And in a different context, wisdom is also having a wise sense of what to do when you don't know what to do. So in mm. that sense, it would be choosing well when you don't know the answer, right. And in, in the complexity, the ever expanding complexity of things, the guy who makes the more wise choice is, is leaning into something where maybe he doesn't know, but he's confident enough to sort of, you know, make this move that is based on higher values or things, mm. right. That are, I love this. So, so just, that's one way to talk about it where it might not be exactly knowledge. Like I don't, I don't really know the answer. I haven't seen this before. I'm in a new set of complexity and I've got to make a choice. Mm. So the wise person would, I would guess, make a better choice than somebody who's unwise. So how's yeah, he doing is, that? Uh, right? This is a compass versus a map. Yeah. 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 I really and like so, what you said just to, I, I just want to stay here for one second on this, sure. this, this kind of wisdom that you just pointed to the it's embodied knowledge. Sure. But in a different context, we can call it the ability to make right action in the face of uncertainty, unknowingness, novelty struggle and i think that really super resonates for me as an understanding of wisdom because the like it's not just like a practice it's actually something that will like guide you when there is no more road yeah yeah which is what really humanity's is what we're facing right this is the meaning crisis that everybody's Tip of talking the sphere. about it's this it's this entire complexity of how we're communicating, what, what can we trust, what's going on with all this stuff. And so wisdom in the middle of that is not necessarily knowing X, Y, and Z about COVID and what happened that way or this way or that way. It's, it's you know, in, in not knowing what's the wisest choice that I have here, right? Like, what can, I, what can I do? And how can I sit in that comfortably and confidently, like as a sage instead of as a... <gasps> It's got to be exactly right. Like, what's the right thing to do here, right? So there's a there's a confidence that almost can come with this as well. But I want to I want to point to something else, and then we'll come back to maybe that um, unconscious competence model. The I think what Greg said about it was something to do with having right relationship to isness, and then ought on top of that. Okay, mm. and so it it points to this deep thing that lots of scientists wrestle with, whether it's physicists or whoever, philosophers, all that, this difference between is and ought, like what's going on with that. And I'm going to suggest that ought is contextual, right? Humans are going to have an ought that is based very clearly on their survival. A selfish person is going to have a very 
clear selfish ought, right? What's good for me in this context? Well, I want to survive. I want the money. I want the girl. I want the this. I want the, I want the significance. So those are all going to drive a certain kind of ought, right? And to then say that all the different billions of people on planet Earth here having their separate oughts, what's the one list of the one, you know, the one set of oughts that we should have that are exactly right? Well, it's, it, you're not going to get there, right? They're contextual. Mm-hmm. It depends on perspective and your history and what you decide to want and all that stuff. So wisdom, to, to honor what Greg was pointing out about it, is what is that right relationship? It's, it's more, it's closer to like a function or a compass to your point, rather than a, a final answer of like, well, value survival first, then family, then this, then that, right? It, it's not a list like that because in some contexts, some of those don't matter at all, mm-hmm. right? I got, I was personally really sick with cancer at one point and my mom still mentions to me, she's like, I can't believe like how you were able to be so calm through that whole thing. And quite honestly, I, something happened in my life where I don't have the same connection to my own death, right? So I don't have running as loudly and I can really only speak for myself, but I can guess about other people, right? But for versus my past self, I don't have the same relationship to my personal death that I used to. Mm -hmm. I'm more free of that. So when literal death was on the doorstep, I was very comfortable with that, which was disturbing to people around me. Like they were, they were, why aren't you more worried? What's going like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, you should be way more upset about this, but there was nothing in the control thing of what I could do about it. I was doing everything that I could. I was showing up for the chemo and I was getting the operations I needed, you know, like that stuff was all being handled. And so then my attitude in the middle of that was very calm. It was, I'm going to watch what happens. I'm going to watch this unfold. I'm doing all that I can control about this and the rest of it, I'm going to deeply accept. That's amazing. So that's a, you know, and is that wisdom? Well, maybe it's a pointer to something that could be wisdom, right? Is that the final answer for all that wisdom is? No, because it depends on the context. Like, what are we talking about? What would be wise as a business move in this situation has nothing to do with fear of death, right? They're totally different things. So wisdom is um, a function that you can take on that allows you to tend toward it, you know, more and more and more rather than wisdom is this final thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's almost like those two, those three things that you listed in the very beginning, the acceptance, the change, the move, the mm-hmm. right action. It almost sounds like if those, if that's like a Venn diagram, then like wisdom is what exists in the overlap there. It's like where you can accept what is real and take action towards what is good and let go of the rest. Yeah. So if we come back to, and I don't, I'm not sure this was mentioned on the recorded part of this yet, but you know, I talk about something called the fundamental shift, mm-hmm. right? There's this possibility for human beings to make isness much more deeply relevant and beautiful and almost like home base that makes all of the human ought on top of that uh, contextually not quite as important. Right? I, I love this. Let's, I, I want to double click on isness. Yeah. Cause I think it's a 
really fun esoteric term that I love, mm -hmm. but I would love to hear, let's talk about isness and I'd love to get into the fundamental shift here. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's, is, what is isness? Is that what we're, yeah. what we're getting to? Okay. So, you know, a lot of people talk about like, what is truth? What is, you know, uh, and by the way, truth is way harder to get to, and I could rattle off a good 10 or 12 reasons why that is. Okay. Um, has to do with how we're interpreting and what happens in our perception of things and, you know, delusions and biases and all that kind of stuff that's uh, deeply involved in our, in our knowing truth, right? What feels true versus what might actually be true can be very far apart. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to sort of prove that. But if we're going to say, what is truth? One thing might be, and I'm not being cute with this, but it's like, whatever is, is true, right? There's whatever, there's isness. And so, uh, you could say in a philosophical sense, the only thing that I know that is happening for sure is that something is happening, mm -hmm. right? Like you and I are talking here. That could still be a dream. I'm not sure I'm right on exactly what's happening here, but something's happening here. Like it's not nothing, right? There's, there's something here. And every time I check and come back, something else is happening, right? So, so that is what I will say is the isness. And so just to sort of give that a bucket, something is. And we could actually include, you know, all of it is in mm -hmm. some sense. And so then as a, an identified separate thing from some of that isness, how much of that isness can I know, right? What is knowledge? Like, can I know it? And that's where we start to get very messy as humans. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, we start to get very messy in that knowing of business is where all my oughts come online. That's where all my own desires, this is what ought to be. This is how we ought to be. This is how I ought to be. This is how my life should be going for me, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's all in the uh, structure of the separate that's kind of arising within the isness. Okay. But if we back up is versus ought or uh, isness versus knowability, right? We'll just say that isness is reality. It is, yeah. right? Right. And it's hard to call it reality because again, then we get into, and Greg and I talk about this sometimes, then we get into, well, are you calling that reality? But what part of that is knowable? And this, it, it doesn't have to for this conversation, but that can get very weird and subtle. So uh -huh. we can just, I want to honor that that can be, uh, we're, I don't want to just equate words, right? Yeah. So what's um, real to me is not the same as what's real to you. And, you know, we get into subjective and objective there and all that, but just to give it a frame so that we can begin a conversation, we could say that isness is, and I don't hate for this calling that reality. That's if that's a useful thing, but yeah. The frame that I have experienced that has been most conducive to thinking about this in the, in the, the best way that I found is uh, through Ken Wilber. Yeah. And Wilber talks about the Greeks came up with this term cosmos. Mm -hmm. And in modernity, we have reduced cosmos to like the physical universe where the Greeks meant cosmos was both the physical universe, but also the experiential universe the yeah. spiritual universe, the unknowable universe, the knowable universe. It's the everything. It is the isness. It's the reality. It's the big reality. It's the whole fucking thing. Yeah. 
So one of the things I'm, I hope we can get to is what I would like to help people wake up to is this watcher position of that isness. Mm. There's a foundational, uh, I would say two parts of that, isn't it? And there's many ways to slice up the two parts um, of it. So we could, there's a, a bunch of ways we could talk about two parts of this isness, uh, but two of those subjectively are thoughts and experience. Okay. And they're, they're not the same thing I'll argue. Okay. And so if we, if we call it reality, we, that's why we want to be careful with that because people might equate just the material world to that and say, well, this is reality out there, but then we have this, well, how we're all interpreting it and thinking about it. And that's not as real. Right. But in isness, my thoughts also are right. They're happening too. So there's difference within that, but there's a, there's a, you know, we could talk about duality in a bunch of ways. I often talk about duality as the difference between good and bad, the valence mode that we add to things, which is as a self, we get stuck there. But another way that most people or many people talk about duality is mind versus body or physical versus mental. Okay. And so if we, I'm going to suggest that all of those are, all of those are in the is, okay? And so as I'm developing an understanding or a wisdom about these different parts of isness, can I, am I capable of watching all of them? And what is it like to watch them differently, right? How, what, what happens there? And self all of a sudden becomes something that you can watch as well, okay? So um, I just said a lot. So I want to just take a second with that and, and see if any of that is meaningful to you. My, my only point there is that isness is not just this external material world that I'm somehow like interacting with. Mm -hmm. Everything is. Okay. Yes. Right. So the way that I've kind of experienced this is uh, what has been referred to as scientific materialism where reducing the entire reality to mere physical reality. And I think that our society and our world is still kind of stuck there and waking up to that and from that a bit and hopefully more every day. Yeah. Um, that's something that uh, Ken Wilber has referred to as flatland. Mm -hmm. Yeah right? Where everything yeah. is just physical reality. That's just like, if, if you can study it scientifically, then it's real. And if you can't, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, Greg's stuff about the problem of psychology comes in very, you know, importantly there, his tree of knowledge going from energy into the complexity of matter, into the mm -hmm. complexity mm -hmm. of life, into the complexity of mind and the complexity of culture, right? Those are all underneath all of that. I mean, matter is, is very rudimentary there in that model, but what's before that is still energy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, uh, you know, taking that model, everything of that is emerging out of energy and it's different forms and complexity of energy sort of interacting with itself. If you were to switch over to a, a Bernardo Castro, he would call all of that mind. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't fit if we mean certain things about mind, but if we can rethink what we mean by these things that might fit very well. Right. So that's, that's why we have to be careful with words as pointers. And, but that meant this before. So now it means this here and context changes all that. Not mm -hmm. to just keep throwing names around, but that's where uh, John Verveke's relevance stuff really means a lot mm -hmm. because he talks about two things potentially being similar and how we would look at, I think he uses a, a bison and a lawnmower. 
And most people would look at those and go, they're not similar at all. But to his point, logically, they are near infinitely similar, right? They're both made of atoms. They both have been found in North America. They both could kill you. They're both not very good weapons, right? But a human goes, oh, but those don't matter. Those aren't relevant comparisons, right? So this self that is coming online has certain things that it's finding relevant, which is driving its attention. It's driving its behavior. It's driving, right? Like out of this stuff and, you know, to, to just steal more of John's stuff, he then gives examples in, in one of his videos where he says, okay, wife, pet, art, gasoline, and explosive materials, are they in a category, right? Did they, do they go together? And most people would look at that and go, not really. No, I mean, maybe, but not really until you say there's a fire in your house. And then all of a sudden they immediately become relevant, right? So mm -hmm. the context changed mm -hmm. and the relevance emerges, which mm -hmm. drives our care and our attention and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. So if we go back to is and ought, the ought part of it that we're doing is a constant, almost like relevance realization for the, the human trying to survive if we're talking about humans. Okay. And if that is uh, at the level of awakeness that it is now, we have a, you know, all of us uh, very much disagreeing on what the ought might be because it's all very selfish driven and, and for me, and that's leading to a lot of the problems on planet earth today. And what I'm suggesting is there's a way to wake up to that and foundationally make isness the thing that is most relevant. And mm. uh, what comes with that is, um, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm saying almost too many things too fast to, to have this as be as trackable as I'd like it to be. But the, the self that is that we're capable of having online, right. That we can either be very deeply identified with, or we've already talked about maybe backing up to even consider it, right. It's a, a psychological structure that we can use. Um, that is the thing that has the history has psychological time in it. It's the thing that's been trying to learn and is trying to get to some future thing. And that self ends up never feeling like it's there yet, right? It always constantly feels like once I get that thing, then I'll be there. But once they get that thing, whether it's the girl or the money or the whatever, it's creative enough to just create another there. Mm -hmm. And so I call that the treadmill of time, right? We get caught on this treadmill of time where we're just chasing, chasing, chasing the there that we want to get to in the moment. We get really focused on one aspect that seems to be missing or is the most painful, the most relevant, the most itchy. We get lost trying to capture that. We either give up on it and suffer, or we really try to make it happen. And we, mm -hmm. you know, even if we get there, what we realize is what we've let atrophy is the part of the brain that can really appreciate anything at all mm. because we've gotten really addicted to this. I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. So the, I'm not there yet, the personal thought, model of I'm not good enough yet. My house isn't good enough yet. My car isn't good enough yet. All of that is I'm not there yet. Mm. And not to just do a quick aside, but like, you know, if we were raised in a kind of family that was incredibly critical or abusive or whatever, that gets ground in like, here yeah, or, that, or even driven. Yep. Even, even supportive and like, you know, a, a real attaboy when you get the exactly. A and, a and a less of an attaboy when you get the B mm -hmm. now it's not okay to get the B. Right. Yep. So all of a sudden what comes online in a, in a smart human being is I've got to do this to get the love and the attention and all of this stuff. And so, Ooh. you know, 
Greg's justification stuff gets gets online into like how are we managing that in social circles and and uh, linguistically to ourselves to our own ego how are we justifying actually being okay and what you'll find is many people become deeply neurotic because they're faking the okay but inside they actually don't feel okay and they're not you know meaningfully justifying their own self they're saying oh one day you'll do this or you're just a piece of crap or whatever whatever they're actually saying to themselves inside and then maybe outside they're smiling and waving but that's a bit of a uh, fake i think they call it the problem of bullshit right we end up bullshitting others and bullshitting ourselves and it's a it's a mess it's a mess psychologically yeah. so i think you've alluded to it a couple times this you know you've referred to it as like a foundational different perspective or a different way to witness and this is what you refer to as the fundamental shift no it, yeah it's the it's the it's the start of it and and um, so let let's talk about this this thing, right? So let's let's say that subjectively, you as Ari, can your attention is a place, right? So you know, right here, I I feel very deeply. Your attention is on me. Mm-hmm. Um, what is afforded to you is your attention could also be on what your gravity feels like. You know, if you're sitting or standing, like what your feet on the ground feel like right or that i was cold and needed to put on my coat exactly right and and so that was a that was a fix it moment but there's also like what does the air on your skin just feel like right and as you do that as we i could literally move your attention around mm-hmm. near infinitely in this moment right mm-hmm. there's a ton of different things you could be paying attention to there's mm-hmm. interoception you could be paying attention to in your body there's outside stuff there's colors you could be focusing on what most of us do is we're not here in this moment very meaningfully. What most of us are doing is we're either ruminating with guilt and shame about the past, right? Things we don't like about the past, things we wish had changed. You know, I wish that had gone different. Or we're anxious and fearful about the future, right? I'm not there yet. That's coming up. Am I prepared? How do I get prepared? What do I have to do, et cetera? And so in your own attention, right, I could invite you to go remember a time when you were, were three. And so that attention is a place meaningfully right just for us to talk about it that way it's a place where your attention could be it also could be much wider and it could include more or it could be very very dialed in and pay attention to something very specific and each of these i mean uh uh, uh is coming out with a uh, his second book talking about right and left brain you know some of this is that right and left brain attentional stuff okay so you know, and uh, I don't want to misquote his work, but, you know, it's some form of uh, if I'm a bird and I've landed on the ground, I might need to like pick up uh, a very specific seed, which is a very direct attention, which might be left brain. But then in the background, I also have to kind of be aware, like, I don't also want to be food. I want to get the food, but I don't want to be food. So that's, that's more right brain stuff, right? So that blend, and let's think about people who today are overwhelmed with, you know, tweets and dings and way more options intellectually than we had a couple hundred years ago or even 30 years ago, um, managing our attention, having it not, you know, start to look more and more like ADHD all over the place um, is, is a skill that is atrophying, right? And what we don't realize is that the content of our awareness has a ton to do with creating the context for what we're then going to decide is relevant next and, and matters the most for us, right? So if, we're, if we don't have any skill in moving our attention around or even knowing that we can do that, we end up very unconsciously being bounced around by 
everyone else's stuff, whatever the news is saying or whatever marketing is saying or whatever is going on that way. Okay. So at a very, very ground level, where is your attention and what is it doing is something to understand. I'm going to say there's two levels to that that are very meaningful to realize the difference between. One is experience. Your attention can be on something that you're actually experiencing, which will always be in the now. It will always be right here. Or it could be in thought, which will be what the past is, what the future is, or things that are just in your imagination. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so we might call that modeling. Like you can, and this is incredibly powerful for humans. We can be in a situation and we can model different outcomes. We could imagine, well, if I punch him in the face, what happens after that? Or if I run away, what happens after that? And that's how we sort of make decisions and how we choose our ought, what ought I do in this moment. Okay. If we don't know that we're doing this, what I'm going to suggest, it seems like most people are doing is we've become lost in thought. We are over prioritizing this modeling and we are getting very, very trapped more and more and more out into the idea of time rather than the actual experience of being here. Mm. Okay. And what's interesting is if you actually can come back and experience here meaningfully, that can become an incredibly beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. And so the fundamental shift would be in some meaningful way, the realization that we are lost in this becoming, this treadmill of time, this, this thought modeling thing, and wake up from that into a deeply grounded sense of being. Now, if we're not good at that to begin with, that seems deeply uninteresting, right? The self goes, yeah, but I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Like all of its meaning about this moment has been set up to be, you're not where you're supposed to be. So you could have moments of the fundamental shift. Like I could sit here and walk you into a guided meditation and then you're tasting a strawberry and the strawberry is so beautiful and it's amazing. You have this incredible state experience and you go, God, the now is amazing. But then without any kind of real grounding in that, what comes next is thought about that rather than actually staying in it. And now you're just modeling again and going, gosh, I guess I got to get back to the now. I guess I got to get back to the now, but you're, you've never left the now. You're always in the now. Mm -hmm but you're not making it relevant or prioritizing it in any way. Okay. So back to, I just want to, yeah, I sure. want to double click on something here. Yeah. The idea that if we spend all of our time in modeling, thinking about what we need to do, what we did, what happened, the stories, as you say, the part of our brain that can be really present in experiencing reality directly, re experiencing our experience directly, atrophies. Yes. It gets smaller. It seems to me that our entire world is essentially encouraging only this modeling. It's yes. like our entire school, our entire, all of our families, all of our relationships, there's not that much emphasis or any emphasis at all on the importance of being. And when we, yes, hundred percent. And part of that is because the whole thought modeling thing has done really well for us technologically yeah, and yes. otherwise, right? 
So let's yeah. let's Save not forget coat. that, right? We're not we're not vilifying that. We're vilifying the lack of awareness that that's happening, and we're trying to wake up so that we can have that as a deep capacity that we can actually use even better than when we're lost in it. So if I'm lost in modeling, I don't know I'm doing it. I might be modeling very, very poorly. That looks like self-sabotage. That looks mm-hmm. like believing bad things about myself. That looks mm-hmm. like suffering, deep, mm-hmm. deep, deep suffering. Mm-hmm. Rather than escaping or putting down all of that modeling to come back to this moment meaningfully, we go to therapy and are told a different way to model. Think about yourself this way or whatever, but none of it is meaningfully escaping the modeling. Do you know when you have to escape the modeling? Probably when you're paragliding. Probably when you're in flow states, shagging flies as a baseball player. So why do we have all these recent books on flow states? Because when you're dealing with a certain amount of complexity, you have to be present or you won't be able to do it well. And in that present, the state that comes over you is this deep sense of flow because otherwise you're, you know, either your success at that task or in, in paragliding, your, your very survival won't be there. Yeah. So all of a sudden we start to attribute to the act that we're doing this special case that I'm going to suggest is available for you in the most mundane of circumstances also. But we instead go back to modeling. How do I get back to paragliding? How do I, you know, um, I'm not just beating up on paragliding, but like any of the flow state kind of things. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it really does. It really does. And the thing that I would, as this maps onto my experience, paragliding, especially cross-country paragliding, where I am trying my best to map and move through, make decisions about this invisible substrate that is a fractal of the complexity of reality itself. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere is as complex as anything. Takes both my flow state in the purest sense that I need to be able to purely observe and experience, but also my keenest modeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that goes to your point that we can't vilify either of these things. Correct. You can't just vilify, oh, the modeling. You just need to sit in a monastery and just become nobody. Just become nobody. Just become nobody. That would be an error. Yeah. That would be an error. Well, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. So let's go. You guys talked about um, meditative mindfulness and psychological mindfulness. Okay. Yeah. Each of those are a function of watcher. I would suggest that one is psychological mindfulness would be being mindful of the psychology or the thinking that is going on for you, Uh right? So you've backed up enough that you can deeply see the thinking, you're aware of the modeling that you're doing and you're Mm -hmm. tracking it. Meditative mindfulness, and there's overlap, you know, I'm not saying these are uh, only distinctly separate, right? We'll be careful with all our words, but meditative mindfulness is the practice of trying to become deeply mindful of the being part of that, Uh right? So one is, can you be present of your physical sensations going on now? And I'm going to suggest also, can you be mindful of the psychological or thought models that are coming online uh-huh. also? Okay. That is a distinctly different position 
than either one of those independently. Yeah. Right. And that's actually the, you know, when, when I talk to Greg, uh, you know, I'm suggesting that this is deeply related to the fifth joint point to get to what this next level of complexity is going to be for us in a, in a way that's very meaningful. Yeah, it seems that this idea that the part of us that can receive this experiential, this experience that can be with our experience profoundly, mm -hmm. there is some mutual exclusion to this because And we don't have to vilify it to recognize that whatever we give our attention and our energy to grows. Every action, every thought is completely and totally exclusive of every other possible thought, right? Because we are on some, in some sense, we are on this treadmill of time that we cannot go backwards on ever. We can't really even go forwards on it. We, it, it passes, we just pass through it. But every thought, every action that I make is exclusive of every other possible action, every other possible thought. And so to become aware of what my energy is getting put into. Can I try to make this simpler? Yeah. You do this all the time. You're experiencing right now and you're doing it as well as anyone else can do it, you might not be prioritizing it. It's, it's not as relevant to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to go back to this relevance realization thing, because I think it, I think it matters a lot. Whatever pops up for you that seems most relevant. And, and uh, again, John Verveke says that this is that much of relevance realization is, is preconceptual meaning that it's unconscious, it's happening to us in a sense, right? Where uh, things are becoming relevant based on the whole system becoming relevant. I'm gonna argue, he might disagree, I don't know. We can also consciously make things relevant, okay? So yes, just like everything, this is happening to us unconsciously. Like if we're not conscious of it, things are happening to us unconsciously. Like, you know, I might get an emotion where I don't even know where that came from, but somewhere in my system, I got hurt about something and it feels like it's happening to me, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, that becomes relevant as soon as my system makes it, you know, conscious to me. And I all of a sudden go, oh, I don't like this feeling. And now it's relevant. And I have to address it, et cetera. Okay. You are in and out of experience of this moment all the time. Like if you can taste what a strawberry tastes like, if you're capable of that, then you experience just fine. What most people do is we taste a strawberry. And even if we like it, rather than actually sitting in the experience of it in any way that's meaningful, we just go, gosh, I like this. And we immediately model, how do I get more? Or I'm still late for this next thing. Like the thinking. Well, who modeling, am I going to tell? Who am I going to tell? How do I share this? Who do I, right? Which by the way, that probably has some selfish motivation. Like, yeah, I want to give this, but also like, then I'll be cool. And they'll like me because I shared it with them. And they'll remember that I had the best strawberry recommendation, whatever that, right. We're doing that stuff all the time. Okay. So my point here is, is that you can be in and out of experience all the time. It's the 
the fundamental shift is not just, can you get present, right? If I said, okay, could we do a meditation thing? And can you get present? And can you see that you're thinking? Knowing about that or understanding that with me in this conversation, we could call that one level of the fundamental shift. Like that's great, but it is not the fundamental shift until your system unconsciously and consciously, I'll suggest, actually prioritizes this moment right now, the isness over the oughtness as its base thing. Like all of a sudden, like I'll describe for you my connection to this. For me, whatever is happening can be deeply beautiful and stunning. Do I have preferences within that? Like I suffer from really aggressive back pains and I have all the human sufferings that everybody else does. My ability to make those less relevant and my actual experience, let's say I, anxiety comes up or something, right? Anxiety, I only suffer from it once I don't want it to be there, once I'm resisting the isness of that anxiety. Mm. If I can drop the oughtness and actually accept what is in a meaningful way, now my anxiety might as well be excitement or something else because it's just a feeling in my system that I can be aware of, just like I can be aware of, you know, a car across the street or a tree or something else, right? It's another thing that is in my field of awareness that I can be aware of. And if I then decide meaningfully that that isness is profoundly beautiful, which I think if we were to debate it, it would be hard to say that it's not because it's really the only thing that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. It becomes deeply, deeply beautiful when I make that isness the most relevant thing, mm. right? The fact that I'm here experiencing anything at all is mind-blowing to me. It's shockingly amazing that you and I are having this conversation. It's shockingly amazing that we're using English and I don't even know how we do that. Mm -hmm. It's shockingly amazing that I have this sense in my seat right now and this affinity for you that is like beautiful. And if I focus on that, just like if I were to focus on the taste of a strawberry, the amount of beauty in that taste of the strawberry, I have a whole lot more freedom with that than I think most people realize. Most people are not consciously aware that they are giving up the beauty of the strawberry to think about and model and do all the things that they're doing. They're not aware that that is happening, right? So this relevance realization can shift to isness itself, which will always be now. It will always be whatever is happening now could be a thought, could be my sense of self, could be something that's happening out in the material world, could be whatever. And as a watcher, I look at that and I sit in the beauty of that in more and more deeper and deeper meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. That's what's possible in the fundamental shift, right? Yeah. The, then what ahead. comes online after that is the potential for identity shifting which is then how do I take on my human form, my sense of self in the healthiest, best way? Because that sense of self is made up of whatever I am identifying with. Mm -hmm. what, what do I think I am, right? What do I, what's okay. the most important thing to do from here? Yeah, but I just, before we get into this, because yeah. this is a huge part that I've, I'm so fucking ripe for. The idea that 
at any moment what your what you could use your attention what you could use your awareness or consciousness to experience is so much wider than what we typically do and it we have the capacity to intake so much more profound beauty in our lives and our days and in our experience than we have habituated ourselves into yes so the almost like the value proposition here is that your life your experience even your anxiety is so much prof- more profoundly beautiful than if we are merely stuck in modeling all of the time and if we yeah. can flex this muscle of tasting the strawberry just purely observationally purely experientially if we can flex this muscle over and over and over not by vilifying the modeling not by vilifying the thinking not by giving ourselves more shame about what we should be doing but just by practicing this this uh, right relationship with isness this just being there with the things that are real our experience radically changes 100%. And I just want to challenge one little part of that. It is the default assumption that you're adding to it, which is where we started, which is the implied grind of that practice. Uh, the practice. Right? The practice part of this. Mm-hmm. So is it meaningful to practice this? Sure. 100%. Yep. But it is the self and you that is expecting that that will take practice to get to a future version of you that is more capable of it than you are now. Mm-hmm. And that is a part of the same delusion that self is always stuck in. So I would like you to, instead of defaulting to, can you, would you agree? I wouldn't say, can you see, I don't want to imply that it's there. Let's would you agree that what's there in that practice is an airy who is trying to capture this idea and have it doesn't feel like he has it now and thinks that to get it sometime later, once you've practiced it enough, that if, if you practice it enough, it'll be there for you then. Can you hear that implied time in it, in the practice? I can hear that. You can? I, could, I, I, would, des- I would describe that like as the inertia of my being and my habits yeah. and my thought yeah. patterns. So the real wake up is that in any moment, you can do it. And so I would suggest just do it. Hmm. And then what you'll watch as watcher is the self come online and go, well, this must not be it. It's not good enough, right? Um, This isn't as beautiful as I think Rob meant. So it must be something else. I'm not there yet, right? And what you're watching is you're actually detaching in a meaningful way from that voice, that self, and not identifying with that in the same way. And to your point, to whatever degree you have to over time, come back again. But my point to this is there's no path to this. This isn't a path. This is available to you in every moment, all the time, because Mm -hmm. there is no time in that way. Mm -hmm. The psychological time that you're tracking and, and, uh, you know, leaning on here Mm -hmm. is a part of that. I'll just call it the structure of self that is still trying to get there. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to suggest that instead of there, can you meaningfully get here? 
Mm-hmm. Because you're always mm. here. Yeah. If I were to put words to that, like how I experience thinking about it like that is that when I think about that, it's almost like a future me doing it. Like, mm-hmm. how do I get a future me to do it? Right. Yeah. Which is so interesting because as we've had this conversation, just even your mentions of presence, as I would call this, right? Like the nowness, the isness, like even just mentioning it, like I just had like awareness of like my ass on the chair. Yeah. My feet that are kind of cold. Yeah. My, the feeling of the tip of my tongue on the back of my teeth. So it's interesting how just like, even just a hypothetical prompt, it's just like the muscle flexes automatically. Right. You're capable of it. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that you own that capability and remember to do it, to come back, to, to see the modeling, right. In, in, you know, to what degree can you maybe build wisdom around seeing the modeling and then again, to skip past this into how are we living our life in time? How are we doing that as an identity, as a self? Um, the wisdom move there is to, is to lose the delusion of the self that you think you are and be able to step into more and more optimal versions of what's really possible for you. Say it again, please. Sure. Uh, I would suggest that most people's current instantiation of psychological self is delusional to them to the degree that they don't see that it's happening. They are taking it to be real and foundational, somehow permanent, somehow, you know, the human condition is just struggle and strife. We're going to have to get there one day. Let's keep trying, right? It, it brings online time and self and struggle and need and all these things, which are in certain context, totally meaningful and useful and matter and exist, but they are delusional in that we have an assuredness of meaning. And this is a function of the self, right? For you to make a decision about, do I go left or do I go right? It's very helpful evolutionarily for you to be assured of what the meaning is, Mm -hmm. right? Is that a tiger in the grass or is that just the wind, you know, doing that over there? And if I can go, I'm sure it's a tiger. Even if I'm wrong, I survive when it is a tiger, right? <laughs> so this, this delusion of what I believe, right? What I call assuredness of meaning is online for all of us all the time. So that practice thing, if I'd left that unsaid and I'd said, yeah, that's exactly it. Both of us would have been in a place where we would have assumed that this is still a time bound thing that requires practice. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of a delusion, right? Mm-hmm. That's not exactly right. Okay. We're doing that at much worse degrees all the time, mm-hmm. believing certain things, believing certain uh, positions, believing certain facts about reality, et cetera. And back to wisdom, wisdom is detaching. I think a, a really important part of wisdom is detaching our assuredness of that meaning to go, what is the most meaningful now, but I'm not going to be overly attached to it even down to like what matter is. I mean, I think that our, our physics today is, is challenging what matter is and all these different things. And uh, 
for many people that might be like deeply disturbing, right? That disturbing, that suffering that they'll have about a change in information about what matter is, let's say, that's their attachment to the meaning, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody falls away from the church, that can be, you know, so bad that they decide to commit suicide. It could be like not acceptable to the sense of self that they have, right? Information can be so disturbing that it's like, I need to end it all. It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. So wisdom, another aspect to it, we might say, I would say is a, is a different seeing of how we're making that meaning, our attachment to that meaning, and detaching from how assured of the meaning we are. Because as we saw with the relevance realization, as soon as, soon as I change the context, the whole meaning changes immediately. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all those things are in a category and do matter to me because the context changed. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I'm really curious and ready to hear this next piece of how this relates to my identity and the ability to change how I identify. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about self-mastery in a sense. And, you know, I'll, I'll, later be trying to do some equation with identity and self really, really fast. Okay. But if we talk about self-mastery, like what does that mean? Um, on one level of self, we might, I, I often use like the Jersey Shore cast. Do you remember that show, the Jersey Shore? Do, do you remember that show or no? Is that, it's like an MTV show. I never really watched it, but do you know what I'm talking about with that show? With Snooki? Yeah, Snooky, exactly. I have right, a right. disturbing connection to that show, actually. Oh. I was featured, I was hired last year to star in a TV show on Discovery Channel that was produced by the production company that made Jersey Shore. Oh, you're kidding. So That's I literally amazing. know the woman who created that. I know all the producers. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. so crazy. So, so we I, were all afraid that they were going to try to Jersey Shore our lives, yeah. which they kind of did, but they kind of didn't. You should watch the show. You can tell me. All good. I, I would love to watch the show, by the way. Um, and I don't mean to call out anybody specifically. So I just want to put this in a category where I don't really mean these people, but I'm trying to point to a kind of person that we're talking about, right? If we're talking about this modeling that, we're, that you and I have addressed, right? This, this thought modeling thing mm-hmm. that we're doing. I'm going to suggest that that model is not just the, uh, you know, I am an agent and I'm trying to model the arena that I'm in and what's best to do in the arena. I'm actually, if we can back up meaningfully, I'm modeling self and world all the time. And Mm -hmm. so as, uh, you know, anybody walking around has an entire model of the universe in their head at all times, right? Mm -hmm. Now, not the entire universe and certainly not the correct universe, but (laughs) to the best of their ability, what they think will happen when they walk into the next room, they're predicting that, right? They're modeling what's going to happen in here based on gravity and what they understand about light and colors and all the different things. Okay. And surprise is when what we weren't expecting to happen in our modeling happens and we're like, right. And for some of us, that might be kind of fun because we learned something for some of us that might be deeply disturbing, all of that matters. But this modeling that we're doing is self and world in total. Okay. And so if we just accept that for a minute, we'll now talk about levels of identification with self. Okay. So when I'm talking about the Jersey Shore people, I'm I'm trying to talk about people who are not very self-aware. They are arena aware. Mm -hmm. So they are deeply identified with self 
And self is not even on the table as, as part of the problem because it is right. Their assuredness of meaning of that self is, I've got the right take. I know what's right. And so you will hear people like this at a bar just critiquing everybody else. Could, have you heard what Tony's doing? And Mary did this. And can you believe that? And can you believe this? And, but not once have they mm-hmm. included themselves. And maybe I should mm-hmm. change, right? That's different. Okay. So now the next level up from that for somebody to become self-aware would be a different kind of conversation at a bar. And it might be this whole description of the arena. Hey, best friend, you know, we're sitting here talking. I'm going to tell you my whole arena. But you know what? I think it might be me. Right. So now they've backed up to add themselves in consideration of what might need to change to make agent and arena model work better. Anybody that goes into coaching or therapy or any kind of self-development work is already at that level. Right. They've already considered, hey, it could be me. Maybe I'm the one that needs to change here. And that's a meaningful difference. Yes. Right. Somebody who's unconscious of self completely, meaning they're fully identified with self. They don't even consider it as a thing that's on the table to change is I would argue less conscious than somebody who's in a little bit higher self perspective that can consider themselves in the mix. Okay. Yeah. And uh, to add, uh, there's also the, on the other end of the pendulum is to be so fixated on your own agency that nothing in the arena, you know, that you are so self-critical that everything is your fault. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and that's a kind of narcissism, maybe, uh, right? Like that might be neurotic narcissism where, yeah. you know, you're just. You're at fault all the time. Everything is your fault. And you'd be on stage all the time. Everyone's looking at me. Everybody's worried what uh-huh. I'm going to do, what's going on, right? So that's like a neurotic uh, narcissism. Wow. Okay? That's an interesting way to put that. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. Yeah. Okay. So now if we have this higher self perspective, you're still deeply, you're not that far away. You're still deeply identified with self. Okay. If we get to non-dual where I'm not judging anything and I'm actually just with isness directly, that would be not identified even with self itself. Now I'm just identified with isness directly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm going to suggest that in the wisdom move, there's all these stages of higher self that we can be and become. Mm-hmm. And one, just to describe it is if we're, let's say we're missing self-love, we're overly self-critical. Could you imagine getting to a higher self place where you're not trying to change what you are? You're just seeing honestly what you are or have been or whatever and loving it because that's been real for you, right? It's, imagine a wake up moment where you back up and you actually, just as if you were a six-year-old who's stuck in the desires that it wants and all that stuff. The way that you could love a six-year-old meaningfully, we could actually love ourselves mm-hmm. as a self and go, gosh, I know when I'm identified with me, I don't really like me. I don't like my body. I don't like my history. I don't like how I'm always wanting things. I don't like this. And rather than being identified with that and making myself deeply wrong, I could meaningfully back up and actually love self. Like, gosh, I, I have care for that human myself. I have care. I, I see you there again. That's a very different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, could that self also look at all the other selves that are involved and love them too, mm-hmm. even if they're not at all aligned with my personal self that wants all the things? It could see, oh, we're all lost in this thing that self does, which is want shit and be significant. And, and I can totally honor, just like a bunch of kids, if I were an adult, I could look at a bunch of kids that were behaving wrong and, and I could not hate them for it. Like a better version of me would be capable of going, yeah, little Timmy's a jerk to my son, let's say, but I, 
I can still love little Timmy because he's just a kid too. Is this making sense? Right. Mm -hmm. So I could, I could back up from my own life and see somebody who's really hurt me wrong. And it doesn't mean I make them right or have to, mm -hmm. you know, do some move where I have to rethink whatever I can just go. They're just the self too, trying to be significant and live forever and matter and be wealthy and all the things. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, some higher self perspective where I'm not even to non-dual yet, but I can have a different level of wisdom about navigating some stuff. Mm -hmm. Now what I've changed my relevance there, right? If I'm mm -hmm. identified with self, other things are by default relevant. Unconsciously survival is relevant to survive. We've equated getting money to be relevant to survive and maybe even reproduce having a partner is relevant to be mm -hmm. cool to my friends. Making sure that partner is attractive is relevant, like blah, 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 on and on and on and on. Right. I, if I'm, only identified with that or more often than not stuck in that identification, mm -hmm. I'm going to have nothing but critique of the world because my creative ability as a mind can look at what is and constantly do ought, 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 mm -hmm. ought, 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 ought in all kinds of directions. Right. So can I break my identification with only that self into at a baby step, a little bit of a higher self to just see that that's online going on? Okay. Some part of evaluation or uh, observation without evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it depends on what you mean by evaluation or judgment. I often call that the judgment muscle. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is where I get back into calling duality good and bad. Right. That's so basically, this... I, I'm just thinking of it as like observation is like experience. Witness. Yeah. Witness. It's isness. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the other is modeling. Evaluation is modeling. Got it. You got it. Yep. So I would say, you know, being and doing or, uh -huh. or uh, being and thinking, right? In a sense. Okay. Um, and so to what degree can we see this illusion that self is doing to us, right? It's a, it's mm -hmm. a wonderful feature. And it's helped us get to here, but is there another way that we could relate to this self? So I will tell you, I don't identify as Rob as much as I identify with isness. Mm -hmm. And I can see Rob in the same way that I can see that chair. A part of isness, a part of reality. It is a part of what is arising. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but am I capable of identifying with Rob? Of course. Is that, uh, is that a deep lens that I take on often to navigate this business and how to be in relationship with other people and be on time for things? And absolutely. But yeah. behind the scenes, I have separated that deep identification in a very meaningful way. Which is what allows you to see Rob dies of cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I don't have to be attached to that as good or bad mm -hmm. in the same way. I can just see that. Mm. I can witness that. Now, for somebody who wants to be successful, that sounds a little bit too much like we're just all going to go sit on a stump and wait for our death and you know, maybe become, become no or whatever. One. 
right? Become no one. As Ram Dass says that everyone loves that so much. Just become nobody. Yeah. 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 Well, that's meaningful. Do you have that capacity? Can you become nobody for a moment, for many moments, for some moments? And then, because if Rob isn't working out, it's really nice to put down Rob. It's really nice to put down Rob. (laughs) Right? And you don't mean lifting weights. You mean like if it's not going according to Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So what is the way that I can put down so much Rob, right? I can walk down my hallway here and be very Rob. What's coming up tomorrow? What do I want to do? What's it, da, da, da. Or I can be in the hallway feeling each footstep mm-hmm. and feeling very, very connected and awake. And I, you know, not to put too much of a religious thing on top of this, but I think that reminds me of like walking in Eden, yeah. right? Like, like literally living in Eden. Okay. Then the identity shifting part, that would be an identity shift, right? In a meaningful way. But then when I need to be Rob, how do I come back online as a Rob who's not overly attached to limits that I think I have, who's not overly attached to how things have to go? What is the optimal, and this is the shifting skill, right? Part of coming online as the best version of me in whatever context I find myself in when it's appropriate to do that. That's like the wisdom of, that's like the compass. That's being a better self. Uh That's building a legacy. That's doing all those things, not with deep, deep, deep attachment to it, because that doesn't seem to be wise. But is that possible? Can I come back and be a Rob who shows up for a call like this and has a conversation with Ari and does, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I do those things? By the way, I used to be paralyzed by public speaking like could never have done anything like this without deeply shaking and all these things, right? I had to shift my sense of self, which by the way, that's what meaningful therapy does to somebody, right? If I end up with a certain trigger that, you know, if I see this person, I have a phobia or whatever, I have to change the meaning of all that in my history. I have to change the meaning of, uh, you know, how I'm uh, making meaning. Mm-hmm. And that meaning making has everything to do with attention and how I'm interpreting and, you know, this wisdom function of this witness that I'm pointing to. So I want to let you sit with that for a second, but can I, can I share one more thing? Uh, Quickly, because I know we, time-wise, we might be long here. Um, do you have one more second? Of course. There are parts of science that you can look up that have literally taken this moment, and this is how we, we talked about school sort of puts on this time thing on us and this becoming, and that's almost what all school and what the whole paradigm of our human life is today, mm-hmm. right? The a very, a, a, a certainly egregious example of this is where science has said, well, this moment is simply where the probabilistic future becomes the determined past. So if I were to draw that in a line, it literally this moment becomes just a line where stuff that might happen becomes what did happen. 
Uh and it prioritizes everything but this moment. I'm going to suggest that it's always this moment, that this moment is actually where all of this really is, okay? And that a function of this isness is that modeling that we can do about the future and the past, but that if we're going to meaningfully interact as people, if we can make relevant and care deeply, change the value of this witness function, which comes down to this moment being really, really present in a very different way and capable of falling in love with isness as it, as it arises for us, mm-hmm. instead of being a child critiquing isness and saying it should be this way and that way and deeply attached to, you could imagine like a little kid, like, but I don't want to, right? That's what humanity almost looks like to me, right? We're all just, I don't want to, no, it's got to be this way. Like we're all resisting so much that is beautiful in what our attention and our valuing could be doing Mm. if we had wisdom, right? If we had an ability here. Um, But I did some of these slides for, for Jordan Hall, right? Where that now kind of opens up and that affords us this different space where even within that now, my own thinking and lenses can be there but if they're super solid, I can't see you in your isness. Like we're just, mm-hmm. we're coming at it where we're not going to meet. But if we can give them a little bit different opacity level, mm-hmm. we could have them and even value these ideas and talk about time really meaningfully. But the, the thing we're valuing, the thing that we're in, just like I think you and I are doing it really well right now is this moment. Like we're here, mm-hmm. you know, as fully as we're capable. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to argue that we can become much more capable of that and that that changes the value of all the other oughts, all the separate oughts that are seemingly unwise from our perspective. We can all have a deeply different relationship to our attachment to what we should be doing over time and how attached we are to this is the right way. And if we only understood this and da, 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 da. If only. If only. It's a really... It's such a beautiful conception and it really cleans up a number of things for me, even if right now they are just intellectual, seemingly semantic right now. The notion that by flexing my muscle of being with experience, Mm -hmm. that I would learn to or mm, mm, learn is that time you saw thing. it yay so. good work good work that's great keep playing with that mm-hmm. keep playing with that yeah that as i flex that muscle it affords me it is a portal it is a it is a valve for beauty and appreciation even of just how I am right now. Mm-hmm. And that any critique of that, how you are right now, is a departure from that into the modeling, uh-huh. which could be really useful. But if you don't uh-huh. see it happening, it's a bit of a delusion. Yes. By the way, the heart of the meaning making crisis, this is all the meaning making, right? That what something means, what I'm attending to, what it comes in and what it means. Is it right? Is it valuable? Should we kill it? Should we run from it? Should we make it more prominent? All of that is the meaning making that I'm doing. 
I can't, I'm not going to do that as wisely if I don't see that I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. The way to see that you're doing that is to make primary the isness first and then watch what comes online after that. Like mm -hmm. you just did really, really well when you said learning and you go, Oh, wait, that's a time thing again, mm -hmm. right? That's putting me away from it in a sense. Yeah, because I think as we have this conversation, I kind of like look back onto myself and I'm like, hmm, how have I been operating with myself? Yeah. And I think I've been kind of operating from the idea that I need to learn, I need to grow, I need to heal. Yeah. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. One day maybe, but not yet. And I think I use a communication of this intention as an attempt to make myself trustworthy to other people that I have these intentions and someday I might be there. Yes. So maybe you might want to be around me in the future because someday I might be there. Yeah. And I'm a person who's going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Whole communities are built on, let's all be the kind of people that are headed in that direction. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I also like the idea that if you were in the hallway, feeling your footsteps, that the world as it currently is thinks that's kind of fucking crazy. Yeah. But it's a waste well, of time. There's also feeling your footsteps, but how about loving feeling your footsteps? And this is where we start to blend the ought back over and it becomes difficult to talk about at our, at our current level. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you could do that and be bored of it, right? It could be like, well, I can, I can move my attention to my feet. Sure. There they are. I feel them and Sweet. I can do it for 10 seconds or whatever. <laughs> Who cares? Not relevant. Or it can be, I can't believe this has happened. Like whatever meaning you want to make on top of that, right? That doesn't need words actually. But I mean, to, to talk about it, I'm going to have to give it some words, but it might be, you know, just, I mean, isn't it amazing that we're here, right? Like, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it deeply shocking that like anything is happening at all to a self that is captured by what it mm. thinks is relevant? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. There. I mean, is it amazing? Do you want to, do you want to let it be amazing? Uh -huh, or do you want to be, do you want to be a voice yeah. that is dissenting from that amazingness into I know how it should be. Yeah. It sounds that's cynical. A, that's to me. a that's a mistake of self, if yeah. I would argue, right? Yeah. It sounds cynical. It sounds jaded. It sounds it might uh, sound immature. To yeah. To not have a capacity to go to be awestruck. Holy, holy shit. Here yeah. we are, right? Uh -huh. This is amazing. And mm -hmm. then what you can layer on top of that with like good taste and good music and good whatever like it's just how good can you stand it like how good uh -huh. is your capacity to love isness mm -hmm. how good is your capacity to be here capable of modeling that's another thing that you're capable of which is fucking amazing bro mm -hmm. it's amazing that you can think and model and do all those things mm-hmm and de definitions of that are great. Let's, let's go deep and try to put models of what the model is doing. And yeah, 
I'm not anti that. I love that. I do that a lot of the time, but that process itself can be beautiful also. Mm -hmm. The modeling is part of the business. Of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. And there are reasons why we split those apart, but I don't think we have to anymore. We can see that all of that is isness and we can actually love all of it. And by the way, does that mean there's no ought? No, there's just more and more wise oughts, which are contextual. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about an ought for the planet? Are we talking about an ought for people? Are I talking about an ought for me? And how can I get those to line up so that they're not in conflict with each other? How can we have oughts for companies where it doesn't make sense to be a race to the bottom with their behavior so that they can survive, right? How can that align with all the rest of the oughts? I think what I've heard today is some attempt at bringing awareness into our perspective. It is an attempt to have clarity on mostly on what's happening in our head as to how we're seeing things. Because the difference between modeling and experiencing isness directly is between our ears. Or that's the antenna for it, at least. Maybe, sure. And the value of becoming aware of our perspectives opens us up to an enormous amount of beauty in uh, an infinite amount of beauty in any moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is going to take a while to sink in for me because I think that one of the most one of the things that you've said today that's most leveraged is the idea that I this isn't something I need to practice. It's something I'm capable of all the time. And notice that you said it's going to take a while to do that. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so just see that see that that's an attachment. See that that's just notice. Oh, there it is again. I, I think this is going to take a while. Well, when I say that, well, I'm reflecting on my... I'm reflecting on my own seeming inability to articulate the shift that I've noticed in my own mental model of this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you're identified with that self, it might take that self a while to get that to unconscious competence. We promised that model real fast. Okay. That okay. model is not my model, but it's a, it's a, it's a competence model. And it starts with unconscious incompetence. This is somebody who's not even aware that they don't know how to do the thing. Mm -hmm. The next level would be conscious incompetence, which is 
They become aware that they don't know how to do the thing. So if we put driving on this model, right, there might be a time in your life before you even cared about driving at all, where you didn't know how to drive and you didn't know you didn't know how to drive, uh -huh. right? Just unconscious incompetence. Don't even know I can't do that. Then you get to 15 or 16 and you're hoping you can figure out driving. And you're like, that seems easy. I've done it on a video game and you try to do it and you realize you're not very good at it. I don't know how to do this. Somebody needs to teach me, right? You become consciously incompetent. Okay. The next level is conscious competence. Driving a car, that looks like it takes all of your attention to do it. And maybe you're good on local roads, but like the highway is scary and you, you could never like eat food and even you don't want the radio on. Like it's going to take all of your conscious attention. That's the reason much of this is hard is that's a big cost. That's hard. And if you're trying to become unconsciously competent in something, it, it tends to take a lot of effort for a self, for a, a human animal to, to get it into the unconscious. Okay. Mm -hmm. But eventually with driving, most people get to a point where they can drive and it's not hard at all. There might be some complexity that gets weird and they have to bring their consciousness back online to pay attention. But many of us can like eat food. Women are doing uh, their lashes while they're driving. Many of us forget that we even, what the trail was to get us there, right? We were unconsciously competent at driving, okay? Mm -hmm. If we think about negative thoughts or difficult thinking, right? Unconscious competence is closer to that Jersey Shore analogy I made, right? They don't even know that they're thinking or that it's a problem, right? They're not even aware. People who come to coaching or therapy end up in a place where they're like, hey, I know this feels a little crazy. I'm not making good meaning. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm incompetent. I'm, this isn't as good as I want it to be. It is a fundamental shift to become consciously competent at this, to see the model making that you're doing. It may in the beginning, take effort to stay there. And this is why I've built tools to do it and help people figure this stuff out. I have something called back to breath. And there's all these different things that we can do. 3G3 gratitude. So you can move your meaning making in the moment, all these different things. That's conscious competence. Like I'm not doing it on autopilot, but I have the capability. I can see my thinking and sort of pop out of it when it occurs. Unconscious competence is where we want this because then it's what the unconscious mind is serving up mm -hmm. on autopilot, mm -hmm. right? Better meaning making. It's obvious to be more present. I don't have to do it as a skill or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about it with you as though that is available to you because it is. Mm -hmm. But to your point, the self that is so ingrained and has its history is going to be loud and tools are really useful to be more and more consciously competent at this before it might get into the system as unconscious competence, where it's just the way that you are. So another way that I talk about identity shifting is that when your default sense of self and you know uh, even the escape of self and that higher self all the way to non-dual is what your gravity is as your way of being more and more naturally and more and more unconsciously, so that that's just how you identify. I love that. And there's some confusion in me here because I have noticed these kinds of identity shifts in myself. Mm -hmm. I have noticed how as I come to identify and see myself differently, it 
affords an emergent change in my thoughts, my behavior, my energy, how I feel. But I have never had anything that went from epiphany to embodiment spontaneously. Epiphany starts for me, and I try to carry it with me, and I try to wear it, and wear it, and wear it, and wear it. So who does? Who does? I do. I do. Yeah. Your sense of self does. Uh That sense of self is the desiring, time-bound version of you that you could be deeply identified with. Uh right so if you want that self to have it it's going to require the ability to back up and see that self doing that desiring Uh for it to become more embodied so the noticing here would be to get some language around shifting the identity out of that being an aspect or a way that you could be and the, the wake up in the moment is the emotion or the, the seeing of, oh, I wanted to have it again for time purposes. I wanted it, the self wanted it as a tool on the belt in the idea of myself rather than the giggle that you could have at like, oh, there I am again trying to, trying to own it as a thing. Like it's, it's me doing it now that is the thing. I just, I just did it. I just saw myself doing that again. So it's the seeing of the doing, the doing there, the doing there is me actually trying to implement what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think this is a deep rabbit hole because I think that the inertia of my life has been using my sense of self to improve, grow, learn, change, be different. And I'm, I think I'm drawing a blank on the times in my life where I had some kind of shift that wasn't from that place that starts as intellectual knowing that I can work and it can sink in over time that eventually becomes a part of the soil from which my behavior, thoughts, feelings, actions grow. So notice that you right now that is going back in time to find the times where you've done it so that you can have it so that you can know it better. That entire impulse is just more desire, uh-huh. which is fine. But just can you see that that's self doing that? Yes. Could you even in this moment just put that down and come back to business? which has in it that self and whatever it's left in your body, maybe a little bit of desire feeling or, Uh but then add the air on your skin, Uh add what your breath feels like going in and out of your body. And notice that that's available also. You might even add in a little love for that area that wants all those things. Mm 
and see if you can start dancing with Aerie is a, a feature that I can identify with. And he shows up in all these different ways, different desires, different attachments, different knowledge, different memories. And I'm also going to be higher self or behind him a little bit from time to time. Mm-hmm. And the epiphany will begin that becomes a little bit more embodied when automatically you see when that desire pops up again, up oh, there's Ari doing it again. There he is. Cool. And at first that might be really frustrating. Like, Oh, he's doing it again. God, God. And that's just another form of him not wanting to be what he is in the moment. But the giggle is the wise behind self part of you that can allow it to be as another part of isness. Oh, I got attached again. There he is. Mm-hmm. And sort of giggle. And then is there anything to learn? What could I do from here? You know, that's fine. So how is it that you guide people in this shift? I am reluctant to say process or learning or growth or change or anything, but what is the Because in our conversation, there have been a number of times, even as you just point to it, I come back into my body and my sensation, my experience, my thoughts become, I become more aware of those things. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that brings me to the conscious competence. I can consciously use the flashlight of my awareness and I can shine it there yep. and I can shine it there yep. and I can shine it there. Yeah. But the idea that that I would want more of a flashlight or to turn the lights on on the whole fucking thing. Yeah. The desire to have that in the future derails the flashlight. I'm somewhat confused. I definitely can't articulate that thing other than just bringing my awareness back to my breath. Breath as a pointer of just business. That's a, yeah, exactly. that's a feature of business. Exactly. Right? So I'm glad. And I say that because a lot of people don't get that. They think it's just breath or whatever, but that's just a, mm-hmm. that's a, a neat pointer that seems to always be changing in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the start of that question was, how do I guide people? I mean, this is what I do for work, right? I have, I have two levels of coaching that I do for people. One is the fundamental shift coaching community that I run, which are people really trying to understand what is that meaningfully, you know, the fundamental shift, what is that? Um, and how is that the, the it, it might be called the fundamental identity shift. Like how do we actually shift our identity to not be so grounded in self all the time, right? And then I have a, high-end mastermind group called the Identity Shifting Mastermind, which is, uh, you know, fewer people, much higher level, um, much more intense time with me and, and coursework, et cetera, to go through the dimensions of this to really be able to not only have the fundamental shift, but, you know, do identity shifting, which is how you come back as a self in a meaningful way that's mm-hmm. profoundly different, right? Um, so that's the that's how I help people do this. 
I'm noticing like the, the feeling of, of like almost being like challenged that, Oh, Oh, you're trying, you tried it again. That's mm-hmm. gone. I was like, wait, was it gone? <laughs> so I want to like, when I was, you know, 19 or so, I have now tattooed where a watch would go, right? And it's, uh, there's, there's, I talked about time a few times in this conversation. Um, and it's, it's, time is absolutely meaningful, right? It's a, it's a real thing, past and future and all that to, to whatever degree there's, they're there. Psychologically, though, we get on this treadmill of time. And so another pointer is to how can I actually see what I'm doing in this moment with my own meaning making, my own attention and the structure of everything that I'm making relevant to me. To John Verveke's point, much of that is happening to me, sort of unconscious system is, is on point doing that. But then what am I doing and what, what degree of freedom do I have to reinterpret those things, mm-hmm. right? Like what's going on there? And you just did really high level stuff with me. I mean, it's obvious sort of how deep you are with way before we ever met, right? Like this is not all this conversation. Um, you know, I think many people would hear this conversation and be like, I have no idea what they're even talking about. Right? It seems, seems very odd. So you're, you're tracking what I can feel. And I also just want to honor the, the time you told me we have. So I don't want to just keep talking because we can get captured in that. Um, there's going to be a part of you, the self in you, that wants to like have this or get it. Or there was beauty talked about, and I don't always get that. So what's mm-hmm. going on? That is the same as I want the Rolls Royce or I want the girlfriend or I want, it's just another desire. So all I want you to begin with in that is what if you weren't making any of that, any expectation of more or better or whatever, and just instead would from time to time come back and witness what is. The beauty part of that, making that beautiful, gets into, that's like going to non-dual. This is a, there's something called nested duality, which is a problem, okay? And Wilbur, I think, talks about this as well. So one level of being is deeply in duality in the way that I'm talking about, good and bad. Everything's good and bad. We can judge it all, this judging agent that mm-hmm. self can do. I like it for me. I like, it depends on context. Is it good for the world? Is it good for me? Like what's happening here? That's all this judging. I like that. I don't like that. I want more of that. I want less of that. On and on and on. It's a, that valence quality happens way down in our unconscious, mm-hmm. but we can also bring consciousness to it, right? It's, That's the truth seeker part of us. Right? So we're trying to, we're trying to say good, bad, about stuff all the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Non-dual spiritually is watcher, which just mm-hmm. is capable of taking away the good, bad. Mm-hmm. There's a very famous maybe story about that, right? The guy loses his horses and his neighbor's like, oh, that's so bad. And the, the very wise sage goes, maybe the next day the horse, the wild, the horse comes back with like four other wild horses. So now he's a more wealthy farmer. And the neighbor says, gosh, it's really good that you got all these, you know, wild horses back and the wise farmer goes, maybe. And then the next day, his son, who's his only worker is trying to tame one of the wild horses and he gets thrown and he breaks his leg and it's his only worker. So the neighbor says, it's really bad that your son broke his leg. And the wise guy goes, maybe. Okay. So that maybe position, Mm -hmm. 
what happens later is then they come to take all the able bodies off to a war and the son doesn't have to go because of the broken leg. And he says, oh my gosh, it's so good that your son's leg got broken. So context has everything to do with what's good and bad. Context has, mm -hmm. we're not sure of the full unfolding of things. It depends on when we're judging and how we're judging and whatever. And so maybe is a really, really solid position on knowing. Okay. This is, I could relate this back to Socrates. who's like, the only thing I know is that I know nothing, right? That assuredness, there's a wisdom in that, which is maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. If I just make that about good and bad, we, there is a position that I think you're capable of. I would suggest we're all capable of, if we work at it a little bit, where we could take something that's happened to us bad and then just see it as a witness and say, maybe it's bad. I don't know. I could make up other meaning about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We do this all the time naturally. And my example that I often use is we're driving in a car and some young guy flies by us doing a hundred and it scares us. And we start cursing and hating. We get really attached to the meaning of that, which is this young guy was a total jerk, almost killed me like horrible, horrible, horrible. Later, we find out he had a sick child in the back and he was rushing to the hospital. And immediately with that different context, yes. it's not bad in the same way. In fact, we might've even helped him get there quicker had we known, right? We would have gotten out of the way or guys move, can't let him through, right? Like it's a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. So good, bad are not absolutes like that. They're contextual. They have everything to do with what's relevant. What, how are we making meaning in the moment? When I talk about assuredness of meaning, our self gets deeply attached and doesn't know that it's attaching, but it's attaching to certain relevance mm -hmm. and certain valence, certain good, bad relevance, all that stuff. This watcher position is what we might call non-dual. I'm not attaching good or bad to it, okay? It's just isness there. So the self in you that might get to non-dual and go, I can see my breath, I can do all those things, right? That's great. When that's not exciting, the self that comes immediately back online that's in duality is like, but that's not cool enough. I'm not, it's not feeling as good as what Rob described, or, you know, that's the danger of me talking about Eden and all these things like that can't possibly be it. I must be off. I must be wrong. And self comes back online, doesn't see that it's doing it. And it's back to desire and attachment, et cetera. Okay. So at a deeply foundational level, level one of this is, can you just be playing in the watcher space? Okay. And uh, I was talking about Wilbur and duality and non-duality. And how, when I start to add, and that's beautiful, I'm adding kind of an ought on top of this. And that's a bit of, I got to be careful with nested duality. Okay. So one of the things that we have in uh, duality and nested duality is that in spirituality, we would say that people who are stuck in duality of good and bad is one level of consciousness. And then we might get to a spiritual level of non-duality. And that is better in some way, higher, right? Wilbur solves this by saying transcend and include, right? <laughs> they both matter. They're both important perspectives to have. But what many, many spiritual traditions end up doing is they vilify the duality part. They say non-dual is actually the way we should be. Well, if you consider that, what we've just done is we've nested duality. We've made non-dual good <laughs> and duality bad. <laughs> That's just good and bad again. We just, <laughs> we just nested it on itself. Do you see that? Okay. So to hold that paradox, what do we do? Non-duality is a deeply important perspective. Mm -hmm. And I can start to see through my own wisdom and watching this attached self that is stuck in duality and is judging everything all the time. Mm -hmm. It's an important feature. Mm -hmm. But in, through my awareness of that, I can not be as attached to that. And then my non-attachment can become deeply beautiful, mm -hmm. not just because my feet feel good going down the hallway, but that also affords me like that maybe farmer 
the ability to change my meaning as I'm getting attached to things as a self. That's this deeper skill. Mm -hmm. So I see, I want that girl to really love me and behave a certain way and all that. And it might be meaningful to do certain things that informs that, that meaning and attachment and relevance informs behavior. Mm-hmm. Do I go early? Do I buy her a gift? Do I call her and tell her I love her? Like, what, how do I get what I want out of this? Matters. I'm not just saying do nothing, but I can see my level of attachment to that with a different level of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's important, but it's not as important. My oughts have changed. Mm-hmm. And in the biggest sense, if I were to lose everything, but still have consciousness, oh my, it still could be amazingly beautiful because I'm getting better and better at seeing the beauty in everything, which I would also afford is making different meaning, right? Deciding that a strawberry is beautiful and leaving my attention there is choosing to make that relevant and meaningful instead of the unconscious thought model that comes online, which is how do I get more strawberries? How do I tell people about this? All that that begins. So having the the wisdom to even see that happening is one. And then the actual identity shifting of like, how much does that matter, Mm -hmm. right? Do I want to like Teet Nhat Hanh sit with a wedge of an orange for half an hour every day to just be in a meditative practice of each little nodule of the orange? Maybe, but maybe not. You know, maybe I only want to do it for five minutes instead of, you know. Maybe I could just chew my food. Maybe I just chew my food, right? I mean, but but moment by moment, what do I do? And guess what? Because it's always now and because there is no path to this, no matter how lost I've become, the wake up, the giggle is, oh, I get to wake up again. So in the training wheel version of this, what, you know, not to be disrespectful of that, but as we're just discovering this, the fun part is, oh, I never went anywhere. Here I am again at the mm-hmm. center of my own consciousness mm-hmm. with a story about past and all this relevance and all the stuff that I ought, 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 that I was so attached to that isn't mm-hmm. happening and urgh, suffer, suffer, suffer. And I can wake up again and go, oh my God, let me just witness what's going on here. How am I? Right. Mm-hmm. And part of that is meditative mindfulness of my being and my sensations and my flavors and my tastes. And part of that is psychological mindfulness of like, how am I making meaning? What's mm-hmm. going on here? Mm-hmm. What am I attached to? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's been a wonderful conversation and I found myself in a very heightened presence just as we've kind of like pointed to it a number of times, I just like, my God, there's three baby deer walking by outside the window or like Uh the fall colors here in Colorado or the feeling of my feet, my contact with the chair, feeling of my mouth being my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. In your conversation with Greg, you talked about, you know, loving being without desire. Mm-hmm. And you were really smart to say back to that, yeah, the the um, the the being without desire. There's there's you're leaving past and future there, right? Mm-hmm. The being is being present, and the desire is about the future, mm-hmm. right? So that's a that's a landing at at home base of now, plus all that beauty of mm-hmm. like what's potentially available to us right here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a thought experiment, what if humans, you know, many more of us um, could deeply make relevant the present, mm-hmm. deeply make relevant the isness that's right here, mm-hmm. not be lost in everything's Six. wrong and how it all has to go good, but just go, oh, wow, this is really beautiful. I mean, might we not need 
all of the things at the mall, but we might love sharing like a song around a fire together. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like it, there's something yeah. here though, that there's this, yeah. there's this idea that what if we can make everything beautiful? I feel like the beautiful is almost to take a state of emotion and like project it onto the observation that it would be beautiful, that it would be exciting, that it would be cool, that we would be awestruck, hmm. which I don't know. I feel like there's like some kind of like devil's advocate thing or some kind of like delineation here. That's important because it is the, because the chance Greg that I'm I, like, and are talking about this tomorrow as a matter of fact, the, the, so. the chance that I like yeah. that I have anxiety and I really think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I can be. I'm going to suggest that as soon as you think it's beautiful, you don't have anxiety anymore. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And, and you also, if you can make anxiety beautiful, you're not worried about any future anxiety, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what anxiety ends up being. The other thing is, is that from, as I'm justifying the importance of this, right. I'm in the justification layer. Of yes. this. I'm trying to argue for something that I'm claiming is outside of justification. And so that has some problems with it. That has some linguistic difficulties and I'll, I'll just honor that. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's why, that's why I'm trying to be really careful with yeah. words and all those things. Yeah. I think it is. I, I think that the thing I'm bringing up could be resolved in semantics. Mm-hmm. It's a diff, it's a very difficult thing. The experience of coming into really radical, observational presence with the moment and your experience and then what the emotion that that brings up is a difficult linguistic task yeah yeah so i think i can let go of that one but i feel so super calm (laughs) yeah I feel super calm. This has been really nice. I'm so grateful to do it with you, man. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to do it again. Love to. Love to. Yeah, let that resonate for a little bit. And let's, uh, we'll come back. Yeah, I'll let you know what I, um, okay. The modeling part Everyone, of me thank you and so much the for present listening. part of I me. I hope you enjoyed uh, that as much as I did. out with that. I hope that my I preface in good. the beginning of the episode was helpful. I, uh, to hope imagine so. my. I hope so. State. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it'll be something. To Rob. It'll be something. Uh, watch it happen. You can That's check awesome. him out. Yeah, Thanks so much um, for your time. Website. Deeply I really appreciate you, man. Thanks. So nice to meet you. So nice to do this. Fundamental with you shift. Yeah. Very excited to do it again. Rob sometime. Scott. Okay. Yeah. Google awesome. will help you with that. Talk soon, Rob. All right, brother. Um, Bye. Peace. And yeah. Thanks so much to Rob for his time and his input and his interest in me. If you like this podcast, consider supporting on Patreon. That helps i can't explain how much that helps patreon.com slash in the air share it with your friends stay tuned got a lot more really amazing stuff coming up thanks for listening peace and love y'all